0: Hello, and welcome to the Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got an amazing guest, as always. He is an agrologist, entrepreneur, and international consultant to some of the largest organizations and influential people in the world. Welcome to the show, Robert Syke. How are you doing there?
1: Thanks a lot, David. Uh, It's good to be on the hearty brain. Love talking about brains and uh, where all of that power can go.
0: Absolutely. And such a big part of that is uh, obviously everything we're involved with, entrepreneurship, socially, and uh, food pops up in those conversations quite a bit now. I remember growing up and as a little kid, uh, my grandma had a a farm out uh, south of Sylvan, actually and uh we'd go out there and there there'd be the lambs and everything and it was it was a small farm back then uh and uh i still remember it was a coal burning stove in her kitchen and uh then uh, later on talking to to my mother that uh, she grew up and uh, there wasn't indoor plumbing even back then so we're just talking basically Oh one or two generations and just how much has changed in that time. Can you kind of walk us through uh your journey in agriculture and the changes you've seen and uh how this is uh communicated in your book uh Food
1: 5.0. Yeah, well Food 5.0 is a journey of uh, where agriculture came from, uh David and where it's going. Um and I don't have to go back two generations. I grew up in a okay. house that uh didn't have natural gas. We had coal. My my chores after school were to haul coal downstairs with five gallon buckets to the uh, to the basement where we had a, a coal stoker, a furnace, okay. and uh, we didn't have running water. Uh, wow. And so when I grew up, we didn't have running water, and uh, we didn't have television, and so <laughs> it was uh, through the course of uh, you know, pilot uh, through the age of. Uh, Ten years of old ten years old through my teens that we finally got the luxuries of uh, indoor water and uh, didn't have to go outside to the outhouse anymore and uh, eventually got natural gas and uh, eventually uh, actually got a telephone and and television so, uh, I'm not that old uh, and uh, and yet I remember growing up in that type of environment we also um, had a large garden in our farm uh, and uh, My mom and Baba uh, on both sides, uh, uh, both uh, sets of grandparents uh, were from Ukraine and uh, they were all farmers. And so I'm 100% Ukrainian uh, ancestry. Uh, I was born in Canada, but my first language actually was Ukrainian. Uh, I stayed in Guido a lot. And, uh, you know, uh, gardening and gardening was a big part of growing up. Uh, and the gardens were massive and and back back then we did everything. We did everything from uh, uh, growing the garden to pickling the pickles to picking and digging out uh, digging uh, the uh, the potatoes. I remember that's a uh, brutal brutal job that was, and then you know chopping the heads off chickens and butchering uh, hogs and and uh, cattle on the farm, all of that growing up uh, so that's wow. where I came from. That is uh, of a distant memory to most people. <laughs> listening to this podcast, or they would never have that memory?
0: No, they, they definitely wouldn't. Uh, it's, it, it just baffles my mind how much has changed when we look back and notice then the progression. And a lot of it is because of agriculture. Like how labor intensive was it when you were, were growing up on the farm? Like you mentioned digging up the potatoes, but most people can't really fathom just how backbreaking that can be.
1: Well, yeah, I I say in my book, Food 5.0, that people often say, oh, we should be one with the land, you know, well, two things, they've never grown up with the land. And number two is they've (laughs) never harvested a quarter acre of potatoes by hand. So, uh, you know, we uh, like like all parts of uh, civilization, like all parts of our your your business, uh, your chiropractor, you're involved in in medicine, you're learning every day agriculture is that way uh, you know we're right. a subject to the same Moore, Moore's law and Metcalf's law um, I would probably say we are a little bit slower at adapting uh, some of the technology in our sector uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, bottlenecks still today is uh, lack of uh, broadband service in, in rural uh, areas so it's right. hard to have a, it's hard to have a smart farm with a stupid internet connection. Uh, But uh, but agriculture uh, has really, really moved forward and rocketed forward, a combination of economies of scale and technology. And the fact that, uh, you know, uh, when we were on the farm, you had uh, four or five, six children. Most of those children went on to become teachers, doctors, lawyers, hockey players, whatever. Uh, Most of them left the farm and that left uh, fewer and fewer people on the farm. And over the course of time, farms got and are still getting larger in size, largely due to economies of scale.
0: Hmm. Now, kind of walk us through some of these these uh, tech advances that, that have occurred. Like I, I love in your book how you use the example of Elon Musk getting all this attention about autonomous vehicles. And you're like, well, sh- shit, we've had autonomous tractors for decades now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, not so much autonomous, but you know, people people often ask me uh, what are the two or what are the major uh, the game changers in agriculture uh, in in my lifetime. So I was born in 1960. So do the math, but the two the two largest game changers, and I think there'll be more coming. We we could talk about where it's going, but the two. Major game changers uh, in agriculture, definitively for me anyways, were GPS uh, or auto steer, the ability of a tractor to steer up and down the field uh, or a sprayer to go up and down the field by itself. Um, That wasn't autonomously necessarily, but it's hands free. And uh, today we're really talking, David, uh, around a, uh, a sprayer that could be 120 feet in width going down a field at 12 to 15 miles an hour with, uh, with literally sub-inch accuracy, certainly sub-six-inch accuracy going up and down the field. So the, the GPS, the advent of GPS global positioning system, and the second one without a doubt would be another three letters, would be GMO or herbicide-tolerant uh, crops. Those two things were pivotal. They made all right. of the difference in the world to uh, farms and, uh, and, and, and our efficiency and our ability to do things better on the farms. And I know the second one is oftenly, often misunderstood and people have all sorts of uh, preconceived notion about what a GMO is and, and how bad it is, but that's exactly the opposite in terms of farming. Um, anyways, those two things, GPS, GMO, made uh, the biggest difference in my lifetime on farms and and farm sustainability and, uh, and, and, and technology adoption on, on the farm.
0: Right. Now, kind of the the big premise in your book there is that uh, we've got a massive population that's probably going to peak at probably 11 billion. And how do we, we feed the world's population there? Um, so a lot of what you talk about with uh, large scale commercial farming is yields and how to actually produce crops. Can you kind of just walk us through that as well with these technological, um, advancements as, as you term it?
1: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things to unpack here. First of all, the idea that the population of the world would get 11 billion, uh, you know, that's, that's United Nations. I know I quoted it in my book, Mm -hmm. (coughs) excuse me. Um, I know I quoted it in my book, but the demographics around the world are kind of painting a different picture. China is aging very rapidly. Japan is the fastest aging population in the world. Selling more depends than they are children's diapers, right. and so uh, you know nine billion, uh, uh, you know undoubtedly nine billion in the next fifteen years or so. Ten billion, maybe eleven billion is a bit of a question mark. Uh, coupled with that uh, is the is the uh, demographic shift from uh, uh, rural to urban populations. Most of most of the world is living in cities now, and fewer and fewer uh, people are actually involved in the business of actually growing food. And so from an efficiency standpoint, um, you know, depends on whose numbers you take, but we've got to grow uh, around.
0: Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new higher level than ever before? Then please check out the and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs.
1: But we've got to grow uh, around 60 to 70% more food in all the food producing areas of the world by 2050. Uh, arguably 50 to 20% more food by 2030 uh, in in the in, in the food producing worlds, uh, parts of the world. And for exporting nations like Canada, this becomes even more... Uh, more critical because more people are counting on Canada to continue to grow uh, food to feed the population. And there's a second piece of the puzzle that I think you and I have common ground on, and that is uh, not only uh, the quantity of the food, but the quality of the food. So how do we get uh, food uh, to also be um, nutritious? And how do we provide the right proteins for the human essential proteins that the body needs? How do we provide that through the through the food that we're growing? And uh, I'm particularly interested right now, a bit of a, maybe a bunny trail for us, but interested mm-hmm. in the science right now called nutrigenomics that matches uh, the nutrition that you or I would be, uh, be best for us based on our genomic sequence. So I've had my genome sequenced and, uh, you know, I can categorically tell you that I'm not celiac because it shows up in your genetic profile. We have... Other people that are predisposed to celiac disease, it can be very serious, and we have a whole bunch of people out there that are mentally predisposed to celiac who really aren't celiac, but you know they think they are or have something. But so right. uh, I, I really think that uh, you know the combination of having to produce more food to feed a population, regardless of the ending number, coupled with the fact that we want food to be no- more nutritious coupled with the fact that people want farming and agriculture to have a smaller environmental footprint. So the next book I'm writing is going to be called Pragmatic, Feeding the World Through Sustainable Intensification. And when when you think about it, David, farmers today are being asked to do four things. We're being asked to produce food, Uh, more of it, more nutritious, but we're being asked to produce food we're being asked to reduce our environmental footprint simultaneously, so produce and reduce. We're also being asked to protect the environment, and we're also being asked to restore the environment to some sort of nirvana that somebody else uh, (laughs) has out there. So we have four pressure points facing farmers today that I don't think the average person thinks about, but it's produce, reduce, protect, and restore, all simultaneously. And uh, we have to do that in the face of economic and environmental constraints facing farms. So these are, these are big issues.
0: That's uh, absolutely massive there. And uh, it is a lot of pressure. And uh, I know coming from the functional medicine side of things that, yeah, people kind of uh, jump to how the foods today are making people sick. And, um, I don't know if that goes to the farmer or more to the manufacturing process behind some of it. Like You see the studies, and there are studies saying ultra-processed foods reduce people's lifespans. Um, a lot of people go straight to the allergic reactions or the genetic diseases such as celiac and not concentrate on like food sensitivities. Uh, you also hear about the declining nutrition of foods. So I know from like my perspective that uh, there is a lot of pressure um, with the, the, the food quality out there. And uh, uh, I've also had my, my genomics uh, sequenced and uh, the functional side of it. And there's such a variance, too, of what foods are going to make one person healthy versus another person. And then also what people can detoxify their, their own bodies. And I do see the combination really, really kind of uh, forming together, though, in, in that positive aspect. Um, can you speak to some of the, the kind of niche fields in, in farming and how that might might occur or um, and how's that different than the huge global population or the, the macro perspective on on food production?
1: Yeah, well, it's a it's a good question. I mean, uh, first of all, I, th- I think we're finding common ground in the statement that uh, not not all foods, not all people, like uh, um, Homo sapiens, are not homogeneous. Right. So no, they're not. <laughs> not all uh, not all human beings respond to the same food the same way. Uh, mm-hmm. My sister is she she loves carbohydrates. She's always been a rice and a, a type of person, rice and potatoes. I Tend to t- tend to be more on the protein side. Give me a give me a steak and, and green beans, and I'm quite happy and actually function very well on that kind of a, a, a regime. So um, there there's that. So uh, I I don't disagree with you on on the the process the processed food side of the equation. Probably too much of that. Uh, probably a lot of obesity that, that could be curtailed if we change some of our eating habits. I salt is another issue and, oh, and yeah. certainly certainly, mm-hmm. sugar, everybody talks about uh, too much sugar. I'm not a big sugar fan, but invariably exposed to it. From a standpoint of the farming side of the equation, you know, there's, uh, there is opportunity um, for us to, uh, to address some of the nutritional um, needs of people specifically. I'll give you an example, and that is a Warburton, which is a wheat company out of UK, and uh, they, for a while, uh, had uh, uh, there's, a, there's a, uh, a nutrient called selenium. And
0: mm-hmm. if you
1: grow wheat that's high in selenium, uh, that has been shown to help uh, uh, ameliorate or reduce the, uh, prostate cancer in, in, in men. So Absolutely. the idea would be to tie uh, the, the high selenium wheat to a bread that men could eat to help reduce the maybe stave off. Prostate cancer. The, the question is getting paid for it. Another good example would be zinc. Um, it's a very, uh, very possible for us to uh, enhance the zinc supply in a lot of the foods that we grow at farm level. Um, uh, you know, we talk a lot about food waste in the world. Uh, when I was talking to the United Nations and the FAO, um, we hear people talk about the concern about food waste and and uh, waste in the fridge and waste in the restaurants. The number one uh, waste of food in the world, David, is mycotoxins. It's the number one food waster in the world. Uh, It destroys food in the field and in storage, and it's the number one cause of liver cancer on the planet. I have- These these
0: are horrible compounds. They're very poisonous.
1: Aflatoxins, I mean, people talk about organic, right? Well, mm-hmm. aflatoxin, microtoxin are organic. Yeah. So so is botulism, right? So yeah, that you inject into your face. And so, uh, you know, it, it, I have uh, shares in a farming operation in Uganda. Uganda has the highest liver cancer rates in the world. Why? It has some of the highest mycotoxin levels in the food. And so, again, uh, uh, people want safe, nutritious food. Nutritious? Yeah. Can we can we make sure we get paid for that nutrition? That's a really big right. question mark right now. The second side of the equation is the food needs to be safe. So when you consider what we do in agriculture today, uh, a lot of what we do in agriculture is around mitigating risk uh, due to mycotoxins. And you think like fusarium in in um, fusarium in barley or, or feed grains that we feed to cattle. Um, you know, ergot, ergot causes abortion in human beings. So you don't want a lot of ergot in your grain. These kind of things that a lot of people aren't even exposed to, let alone think of or or oh, you know not definitely aware. not aware of. Yeah, no. not aware of at all. Right. Yeah. So
0: with these microtoxins, what are the ways to to get rid of them or to, to make sure that they're not in the food production?
1: Well, it's very difficult. I mean, they're pervasive everywhere they're they're, uh, they're called ubiquitous. so mycotoxins are everywhere. And uh, mm-hmm. really, uh, you, you know crop rotation is one thing, but it's difficult if they blow in, they blow in as spores. Um, the the uh, the number one way of controlling it is with fungicides. So fungicides right. are fungicides are pesticides that control uh, that infestation of disease. So we use that to control disease levels. Um, again, Uh, You know, you contrast uh, different farming methods uh, and uh, these uh, aflotoxins, mycotoxins, are very difficult to control in organic food, for example, because they don't have the tools. So, uh, you know, there's some trade-offs that go on there. Uh, You may have lower levels of synthetic pesticides in the food. And again, we could get into parts per million versus parts per billion. But when you contrast that against what might be in the food in terms of organic toxins... Uh, that are in the food. I'm not making this up. This is, I this know. exists. And exactly and so, uh, those things need to, those are trade-offs. Those are trade-offs that we have to, uh, be aware of. And, and, uh, you know, um, uh, people who think that food is absolutely risk-free, it's not true.
0: It's you, not. No, every, every organism on earth is trying to eat something and <laughs> there's, there there is a competition between them. And, uh, from what I'm gathering and what I've looked at before, a lot of it is yeah, we've got this idealistic notion about our our food, but to be honest, when we get into the details, it is really choosing the least worst option. Am, am I wrong on that one? <laughs> no,
1: I, I mean that, that's that's uh, that's you know I, I often say that there's you know something called cowboy math, and so if you want to grow uh, two hundred bushels of corn per acre. Uh, it takes roughly a bushel, a pound and a half of nitrogen to grow a bushel of corn. So 200 bushels of corn per acre is 300 pounds of nitrogen. Has to come from somewhere. Canola. We are familiar with the yellow fields in the summertime. 50 bushels of canola will take roughly 150 to 165 pounds of nitrogen. Has to come from somewhere. And so there you get into the balance of what are the technologies that you can implement Throw on top of it uh, ideology, throw on top of it environmental, uh, environmental impact, and there's all these trade-offs that go on. So, again, I'll give you an example of a country that I think went totally off the rails, and in the spring of 2021, I predicted the downfall of Sri Lanka. Not me, but we several of us predicted the downfall of Sri Lanka. Why? Because the president of Sri Lanka wanted to go to COPS 26 and declare Sri Lanka a 100% organic country. How did he do that? Well, he banned all synthetic pesticides and all synthetic fertilizers from the country. Sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. Not. Well, the first thing that happened is the weeds start growing in the tea plantations. Snakes come in because you can't control the weeds. The The people can't harvest the tea leaves as much. Tea production goes down 40 percent. Rice production goes down. Balance of trade goes down. Tourists stop coming in and a begin then begins a domino effect of the fall of Sri Lanka with the ousting of the president and complete loss of balance of trade. Those kind of things are ideologically driven political policies not connected to the pragmatism of agriculture. Those things concern us.
0: Oh, absolutely. And just to kind of put it in perspective globally, how many countries can actually kind of roughly percentage-wise um, be in control of their their own, uh, own uh, food supplies? Like how many of them are importers versus exporters?
1: Roughly seven countries in the world that uh, are able to produce more than they grow. Canada, the United States, uh, Australia, New Zealand, France, Ukraine was. Uh so there there aren't that many. uh, and then Argentina, I think uh is is a, a net exporter. I still think Brazil consumes more than they ship out. So there there right. are not. I, I think there's seven, uh seven, eight countries around the world producing, capable of consistently producing more than they consume. Canada's one of them. We're a net exporting nation. Right. Exports are critical to our economy. And uh and so uh uh, we're uh, we're you know when you look at the uh, the balance of of uh, trade uh, globally for example if I threw out uh, lentils and chickpeas for example lentils and chickpeas most people wouldn't think of that that's called a legume crop but Canada right. is a significant trader saskatchewan in particular a significant trader of those uh, of yeah, those projects uh, around the world yeah yep yeah, yeah. absolutely. So again, when it comes to balance of trade, when it comes to the importance of agriculture, um, again, I I love talking to people like you about this because it's such an important part of the Canadian economy. Yeah.
0: Oh, massive. And the world, like we talk about globalization right now and how things are starting to to go more into blocks versus the whole global outcome. And when you talk about only about seven or eight countries being the world's food support, and, uh, but at the same time with a growing population, but at the same time, you also have countries that have never kind of been online at the same time. So in, with your experience there, which is immense, um, how many more countries could kind of come on board and what would be kind of the max that the, the world could support then?
1: You know, that's a a great question. And when you travel around the world, I spent some time in Kenya, Uganda, and in particular Nigeria, which is now probably about 210, 220 million people. Uh, Medium average age of that population is probably about 17 uh, years of age. So when those kids start having kids, that population is going to explode. Uh, Countries like Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, uh, uh, Tanzania, have a tremendous capacity to increase production. So does Nigeria. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we think of is we think about our farms in Canada as producing most of the food. Uh, th- those commercial farms are very important for exportation. But in fact, most of the food, um, 70% of food around the planet, is actually uh, grown by smaller landholders. And right. uh, to the extent that we can, the extent that we can, uh, educate smaller landholders on, on scientific principles for agriculture, the sooner the better. I mean, I've been to Kenya and this won't make sense to most of your listeners, but I watched as Kenya evolved to this thing called a tractor and a one-way disc. Well, a one-way disc is tremendous from the standpoint of preparing gardens and small plots, but it's really quite devastating to the soil because every time you till the soil, you fracture the soil, you destroy organic matter, you destroy a soil composition, you reduce Water holding capacity and those things start going through your head. So I heard a quote a long time ago uh, that you know just because they're small, uh, smaller landholders, uh, you know, don't give them a sharper hoe. <laughs> give them <laughs> better technology. And interestingly enough, one of the, the 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 best things we could do in a lot of these areas would prevent to would be to prevent seed fraud. I'll repeat that: seed fraud. S E E D. So the, the, you know, the landowner will save up and try to buy these packaged seeds that are nicely packaged, but inside the genetics are crap and they plant this thing and, and the crop doesn't come along. It's a real pervasive issue. Another issue is soil testing. If we could, if we could mobilize uh, more uh, soil testing, I've been on farms where you say, what's your organic matter? They say, I don't know. What's the pH of your soil? I don't know. What's right. the nitrogen level? I don't know. What's the phosphate level? I don't know. Do you buy fertilizer? Yes. How do you know the fertilizer matches what you're growing? I don't know. So there's a lot of education that can be done. And again, countries like Canada, you know, one of our our best exports actually could be the knowledge and wisdom of our agricultural sector. And that's what I'm working on right now. That's what I'm working on with, um, with, the, with the new company AgVisor Pro that I'm building.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's dive into that because I've always stated that uh well, about Alberta especially is uh our biggest export to the US is talented people, innovative people. And uh that uh the innovation in Canada, though, usually just happens in established sectors such as agriculture and uh not so much into new new things. But at the same time, we're kind of in this crossroads uh, internationally where things are closed down more so border wise and that more economies are starting to sprout up and that we do have more of that entrepreneurial side. And uh, yeah, it's stepping away kind of from the, the egg conversation as well and diving into what you're doing as an entrepreneur and sharing your knowledge here is that, uh, yeah, it is kind of global that you're exporting it and uh, just kind of walk us through your approach as an entrepreneur then with uh, sharing this knowledge and uh, supporting uh, smaller farms then.
1: Well, any, any size of farm. So in 1997, mm-hmm. I formed a company called Agritrend and it grew uh, to be one of North America's largest independent consulting firms. We worked in the area of agronomy precision ag, grain marketing, farm business management, carbon credits, and a data platform. And I exited to Trimble, completing my exit in 2018. I also, in 2019, became CEO of a robotics company out of Regina, Saskatchewan called Dot, and we exited to Raven. And in amongst that 2019 period, I began to think about if I could leverage... uh, uh, technology to shrink time and space like a Star Trek transporter. Right. How could I do that to put uh, and connect those seeking agricultural advice with experts to answer questions now? And that was the genesis of AgVisor Pro, which really is a combination of eHarmony. So it's a matching algorithm between a seeker uh, putting on an, uh, an anonymous question into our platform that's Geotag. So I know that it comes from uh, Melfort Saskatchewan or Sylvan Lake. So uh, it's geotag but it's anonymous. We have our first provisional patent that, prov- that creates a matching between that question and subdomain experts and domain experts in those areas. Uh, those experts are either verified independent or company experts who can respond. So the first piece is um, the eHarmony. Second piece is Uber. How can we make it really easy and pleasant for people to connect. Uh, Can they schedule? Can they monetize the brain? The third piece is the instantaneous connectivity. So with AgVisor Pro, we built all the connections inside the application. So audio and video uh, calling, uh, high resolution picture sharing, video sharing, sim PDF sharing, all instantaneously, chats all instantaneously in the app, and the last piece of the puzzle being the twitterization so that you can follow ongoing conversations very easily which is hard to do in twitter but uh, but uh, keep you coming back because you're curious about the topics that are being discussed so that is all built so we built that and again referring to you know central alberta uh, a lot of uh, a lot of those really innovative ideas in in agriculture come from canada uh, people right. say we think outside the box and that's not true. What we do is we have a really small box in Canada. What I mean by that is, uh, is the agricultural sector is severely constrained in, in Canada. And if you think about it, uh, and, and many people don't, we have to get 70 million acres into the ground in 30 days. We have a right. 90 to 110 days to grow the crop. We have to get it off in about 30 to 45 days. That is a very, very tight box. Almost nowhere else in the world is it that constrained. And that constraint, you know, getting back to your entrepreneurial uh, thinking, and Dan Sullivan, Peter Diamandis will talk about this, is that if you really Mm -hmm. want to get creative, don't think outside the box, make the box smaller and think inside that box. And so when I was thinking about AgVisor Pro, trying to connect the world to its experts, Uh, I'm trying to do that very quickly in a very time-constrained fashion. And so uh, my thesis is that the best expert for a farm is probably somebody that farmer doesn't know. But how do you find that person? And you can't find them on Twitter. You can't even find them on LinkedIn. (laughs) So so what I decided to do was I felt that it was – important for agriculture to have a 100% dedicated, professional, unbiased, agnostic network connecting agriculture in a brand new way. And so that's what we've launched. I've taken it from you know conception, through the friends and family round, through a seed round, through a safe round. And now we're in the process of, of needing to raise uh, 3 million US in a seed round right now to, to scale this thing, because it's all built. We have to scale it right now. We've secured the first million U.S., but we have to raise another 1.2. And uh, now I'm chasing all over the world to try to find 2 million U.S. Well, that's nothing. That sits on the sidelines in Red Deer. I can't find the right people (laughs) who grasp the enormity of what we're trying to build here. It is esoteric. But when you Well, start to put that
0: into scale, uh, a farm tractor is going to cost what half a million dollars? A combine, least, close to a million.
1: At least. Yeah. At
0: least. <laughs> so you, you're not too far off there. <laughs>
1: and you, you know, when you, uh, when you consider the implications of the decisions that farmers make, the amount of money being spent on a decision, um, the fact that we want to produce and reduce. So, do you want to spend that money on a spray if you don't have to? Uh, you know, those are the things that I'm trying to crack the code on. Um, we also built this, David, 100% during COVID. So right. I've, only, I've only met my staff, the, the whole staff, only once. I've only met them once in, <laughs> since we started the company. And they're scattered. Our best programmers out of Peru, our best designers out of Brazil. We have people from Nigeria. Um, we have people from Bangladesh and India and Wuhan, China all working on our team. And uh, like I said, I've only met them one time.
0: That's uh, that's amazing. You're able to pull it together and, uh, and bring this team together. Um, on top of that, though, you're, if I did the math correct, somewhere in your 60s. 62, yep. And uh, most people are uh, thinking of retirement at that age. And you go out and start trying to raise millions of dollars and start a startup. Um, Not
1: only have I trying to raise, I've already put in millions of dollars. So all, right. chip, all chips are in on this, you know? Yeah.
0: So what on earth uh, drew you to this then? Uh, why are you doing it?
1: Well, uh, a few things. Uh, yep. Number one is I go to a, a coaching program called Strategic Coach. Uh, yes. I fly to Toronto and I will be, um, I guess, tomorrow flying to Toronto for another session of Strategic Coach. I fly every 90 days. Uh, to belong to this uh, entrepreneurial uh, group, uh, and I've been—I just started my 29th year, so that's a lot of—that's a lot of years going to strategic coach. Um, uh, one of the thing, one of the reasons I go is because I'm surrounded by people uh, who believe their future is bigger than their past. So, in spite uh-huh. of all the successes that I've had in business, and I've been very fortunate, uh, I've also experienced. Uh, tremendous heartache and tremendous loss in my life. Right, um, but when you 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 put that in perspective and you leverage the tools that I've learned at Strategic Coach, uh, you learn that your future can and should be bigger than your past. So uh, a lot of people my age and I could have certainly done that. Hung up the, uh, um, you know, hung up hung the up Spurs, the farm boots, yeah, uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> and and retired. But uh, I'm going. Uh, a, uh, my future is bigger than my past. B, uh, uh, I, I believe I have something significant to contribute to society, and I think that when you stop using your your intellect and your body, that the universe starts adding asking for its parts back. So, so you want to keep <laughs> purpose is very. I think purpose is very important, and uh, uh, so the, the future is bigger than your past. Purpose is really important. Uh, and, and longevity. I mean, uh, I think that a lot of us are going to live uh, much longer than we anticipate. You uh, jumped
0: to my about, next question way yeah, too early there.
1: About, <laughs> I'm not talking here about just living, but I'm yeah. talking here about health span. I'm certainly not doing all of the things that I, I likely should. But Well, mentally, let's, let's dive yeah. I
0: really want to dive into that one because, yeah, we talked about population dynamics and that, yeah, we might reach, oh, eight to 10 billion people. Um, but with that, we got an aging population. Yeah. And that uh, basically the way things are going is uh, people aren't going to be able to retire the same way. At least that's what a lot of predictions out there are. Um but I'm very optimistic there with, uh, obviously, regenerative medicine and longevity and all these things to make people um, or allow people that choose to to perform at a higher level as they, they age and increase. Uh, so, yeah, you talked about Peter Diamandis and, uh, well, and those circles. Sinclair. So if you yeah.
1: don't read David Sinclair's book on Lifespan...
0: Absolutely. He uh, he
1: he postulates that aging really is a disease, and is a disease. Yeah, and they're working on that right now. So you know that gets back to the other the other side of the equation. For me personally, is that Mm -hmm. I I look at people that are in strategic coach in their seventies and eighties, right, um, and they're as vibrant and as engaged as they ever have been i have a I have a one of my mentors or peer in the industry just turned 90 years old and wow. in brandon manitoba he's still running his own business there uh and so uh when you think about somebody my age who's traveled the world uh reasonably adept at technology understand business uh i'm probably at you know approaching probably approaching the peak of my effectiveness right now i mean. Because all the connections I have, and I know how to do things, so why would I, you know? And retirement step
0: me, away. <laughs>
1: retirement to me is is being able to um, to uh, go where you want to go. And today I'll be driving to Lethbridge, and tomorrow to Toronto, and the next week is Regina, and then San Francisco. Basically, I go where I want to go. Uh, I do what I want to do. Um, I have enough money because I work to, right. to make sure I have the money to do it and I <laughs> hang with the people that I want to hang with. So my uh, my staff is, uh, you know, 80 percent under 35 years of age and 50 percent under 30 years of age. So very young mm. people. And I, I right. think all of that mix goes into it. I know a lot of people think I'm crazy, but uh, that's well, I think they're crazy. I, I don't think I'm crazy. <laughs>
0: now you have so much energy and that's one thing i've always admired about you when, when i met you is uh, your positivity and the the energy you exhume over and over a room and and hand out to people so what are the things you're doing to keep your energy levels high and to keep your health as healthy as possible
1: well um a uh, little bit on the personal side so uh I was I was going to the gym uh a couple days a week. I, I really enjoy motorcycles. I enjoy sailing. I uh enjoy uh just kind of some golf. I'm not a real big gym guy.
0: Right.
1: I I uh I, I think I I don't over I, I, I don't eat too too much, although I probably could lose 15 pounds or so. Um I do tend not to eat after eight o'clock, and I won't eat till the next day. So I do that intermittent fasting. That's kind of what I do. I really don't take a lot of the stuff that David talks about in his book yet, but that's not for a lack of trying. It's really for me just being too busy to kind of go after the the and m M&M and the things uh, that Met Foreman and the things that he talks about. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but, I, but I think the number one, like I, we went through a personal tragedy. We, we, uh, we lost uh, our youngest daughter, Laura, passed away. She, uh, right. She, uh, wow she passed away on October 16th. And so since then, uh, life has been pretty, uh, pretty tough, pretty challenging. And, uh, you know, um, somebody I'm very close to is, is battling cancer right now. So uh, how do you deal with that? And, and I go back to your mental strength again. I, I think that uh, everybody in life and certainly entrepreneurs uh, get handed uh, challenges. And, um uh, it's how we deal with those challenges that really, uh, I think that make the difference yeah. losing a daughter, um, you know, no, no parent should have to go through that,
0: but I hear you. yes. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and, and so with that, with that all in mind, what do you do? Um, uh, so we've done a lot, you know, we had a tremendous, uh, we had, you know, um, Tremendous uh, celebrations for her. Uh, We've set up uh, a scholarship at the Red Deer Polytechnic called the Laura Syke Memorial Scholarship for the Visual Arts. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's been funded now uh, over uh, $22,000 and and we will turn it into an endowment. And um, her mother, Linda Syke, uh, has created a perfume for her. Laura had a very okay. particular, beautiful scent. And so nice. we've got a perfume coming out on April 22nd called Lola, which was her nickname. And, uh, you know, the Red Deer Whiskey Club is hosting a tequila tasting on May the 4th uh, for her. She loved tequila. So you, you, uh, when, when you get stricken by something as bad as that, uh, you know, my brain, my brain, David went into, uh okay. Uh, I mean, it knocks you to your knees. I mean, I'm not, no, I'm not mitigating what happened. Uh, there's, there's nothing as, uh, horrific as that phone call, but after a while you reformulate your brain, you really got to, and, and, and I'm not joking about this. It's a conscious effort to get up and to reformulate your brain. And, uh, uh, in strategic coach, we call it the, uh, the gap and the gain. The gap would be staring into the future. And uh, like, I mean, yeah, I got her picture right here. So. Oh, nice. So the, the gap would be staring into the future and thinking about all the things that I'm not going to ever do with Laura again. The, uh, the gain is to think about the 32 years I did have with her and what can we do to honor her and how do I leverage the lessons that she taught to me? So wow. those those are the hard brain things. I I think, and I don't have all the answers. Believe me, I, I I have been seeking some, you know, some mental health support and things like that. But I think those things are important. You um, know, also say something that, you know, when you get hit with something like that, you know, going going having a chat with your doctor is probably a good thing. Uh, you know. Uh, dealing, understanding that you're dealing with an emotional swing and the hormones uh, move in your body like they've never moved before being caught being kind, of, kind of cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. Um, those are those are where uh, and then, you know, for, for better, or for worse, trying to concentrate something on diet or exercise. And, and, I, and i and I didn't do as good a job as I maybe should or should have right now. But uh, but I think the number one thing, David, to answer your question is the mental side of things to be able to, to be able to wrestle with that mentally and, and keep your brain moving in a positive manner as opposed to depression, which would be really right. easy to get into. Yeah. So that's, that's my, that's my journey anyway. You know,
0: I, I've i just got to thank you for, for sharing that with, with myself and, and everyone listening, because uh, that has got to be a rough, rough, tough road. And uh, yeah. the, the way you've, you explain it and, and handle it is, is amazing and uh, definitely shows the the gift that, that your daughter was and is, and uh, I I sincerely appreciate that.
1: You're welcome. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, I don't think there's anything more we can. Well, add we should
1: finish this on a high note.
0: At that point. Um. All right. Take us to a high point and uh, tell us how people can find you and uh, kind of yeah. one last thing you'd like to leave the listeners with.
1: Well, um, first of all, uh, I've written two books, uh, The Agriculture Manifesto and Food 5.0. And I've had a TEDx talk called Will Agriculture Be Allowed to Feed 9 Billion People? That TEDx talk was taped actually in Red Deer. It's been seen about 175,000 times. And in 20 minutes, I bet you I can change your mind or change your opinion of a whole bunch of things in agriculture. If you watch that TEDx Video. I challenge you, uh, because in that in that particular venue, uh, people were walking in with their arms crossed when I was introduced, and by the end of it, they were leaning forward in chairs. Uh, the second uh, thing is that when you write a book, like I wrote Food 5.0, um, the first three lines of the book, written in 2019, so just think about that date. The first three lines of the book are: When you woke up this morning, did you worry about a plague? Second line is, did you worry about war? And the third line is, did you worry about famine? This was written before COVID. So um, when you write a book, David, you write it with an avatar in mind, somebody you're writing it for. And I wrote this book, Food 5.0, for a 33-year-old single mom in the city with two kids. And the reason I wrote the book for somebody like that is I was tired of seeing people afraid of food. And uh, there's so many uh, bullshit labels on food that if you just understood what's going on on the marketing side, you'd, you'd go, I am being duped. I'm being lied to. Not only that, I'm paying extra money for the privilege of being lied to. So with the book, I try to explain a lot of that, uh, that stuff that goes on in the background. So I encourage people to pick it up uh, on Amazon, uh, Food 5.0, uh, Agriculture Manifesto, tedx talk uh certainly my own website com, and if they really want to get engaged they can download agvisor pro A G V I S O R P R O, agvisor pro on ios or android and you can download that in 90 seconds and you can ask any question anonymously about agriculture and somebody will get back to you so uh that's what i'm working on
0: nice and uh amazing stuff and i've just once again got to thank you for uh everything you've shared with us and uh, the challenges you lay down down for folks to, to reach out to you and definitely do that and for everyone tuning in stay tuned to the next episode of the hardy brain the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers take care